Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. My many Ideas Roadshow conversations have often forced me to confront the deeply counterintuitive idea that many people in the biological sciences don't seem to take evolutionary theory as seriously as they might. It's not that they don't believe it, you understand. It's just that they don't seem to actively invoke it as frequently as I would have expected. So it is that I've encountered a cognitive scientist anxious to justify positive emotions on evolutionary grounds, having to fight through a professional world largely prepared to deny the very existence of positive emotions. Or talk to geneticists who describe the so-called theory of junk DNA that was prepared to summarily disregard the 98% of the human genome that they couldn't immediately understand. And then, perhaps strangest of all, there's the case of UC Berkeley sleep scientist Matthew Walker, who describes how the vital biological importance of sleep was professionally ignored for decades, despite the fact that all animals engage in it. Perhaps this is just the physicist in me talking, but I can't help wonder what's the point of having foundational principles if you're not going to let them guide your research on a daily basis? So the obvious question is, how does someone get to be the principal investigator of a sleep lab? How does, how does your career trajectory take you to that? Had you always uh, dreamt of going into sleep research? It's a good question. I don't think anyone ever sort of wakes up when they're five or six and says, I want to be a sleep researcher. Right. You know, not like they do, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a fireman, right. I want to be a nurse. Right. You know? Um, I think everyone in my field is an accidental sleep researcher. You sort of came to it through some sort of circuitous route. For me, uh, my PhD was actually investigating dementia Mm. and trying to differentially diagnose people with different types of dementia using brainwave patterns. So you would apply electrodes and you would look at the brain oscillations that would come from these electrodes and you would see if you could very early in the course of those disorders separate out which form of dementia that they had so that you could treat them effectively. And during that sort of time period, I was failing miserably. I had no results, no data, nothing looked particularly useful. Hmm. So I started to study the pathologies of these different types of dementias. And some of them turned out to actually hit centers in the brain that would control sleep. Whereas others would not- independent of that. Exactly, others would sort of be elsewhere in the brain. So I started to realize maybe I was just measuring brainwave activity at the wrong time. I was measuring it while these people were awake. Right. Instead, maybe I should be measuring it during sleep. Huh. So I applied for a small grant. I was able to set up a sleep lab by myself. Really didn't know what I was doing. I had sort of just trial and error. There were no other sleep labs that you could take as models or, or, or something like that? Or? Interesting, yeah. In the UK at the time, and this was, gosh, sort of 20 years ago, sleep research just hadn't taken hold. It's better now, but yeah. there were very few sleep labs in the country writ large. So you really just had to fumble through and sort of learn it yourself. It was cool. real. So you were an inadvertent decent. pioneer, basically. Well, I wouldn't say pioneer, but I was trying to be yeah, a jack of some trades and certainly a master of none of them. Um, 
And then we started to see demonstrable differences in terms of patterns of sleep brainwave activity. Um, that was great, but that then led me to the next question was, if sleep is problematic in some patients, then what is the function of sleep? Because if they're not getting sufficient amounts of sleep, and sleep is serving some brain functions, maybe that's one of the contributing factors to their dementia. Right. So then I started to read a lot about sleep, and I realized that, in fact, nobody still could give me a, a satisfying answer what the point of the to why thing. we slept, yeah. which, was, which blew me away. It was remarkable. Right. So at that point, I thought, this is a perfect postdoc. I will go and study with someone for two years. Um, and this is how naive I was. I thought that you know, within two years, I would solve a question that many very smart people had tried to answer for entire careers. That's the benefit of youth. You don't know that you don't know. So. Yeah, but, you know, and so, so my, sort of, my ambition far outweighed my talent and still does so. And so I started to um, sort of try and understand sleep and, and the basic functions. And that was now, that was 14 years ago. And I'm still trying to answer the question of why do we sleep? When I finally get there, I think I'll be able to sort of come full circle and start to come back to the dementia question, which is, okay, how is it contributing? But right, right. now, I'm still in this sort of situation. So completely by accident, navigated by question marks. But you still, you still are looking at specifically at some pathologies and their impact on sleep. And so we'll get, we'll get to that a little, we little are, bit later we on. Are, but it's not yeah. as if you've, of course, completely forgot, maybe not dementia per se, but you are. We're, we are looking. actually now finally getting okay. there. We're coming back to the dementia <laughs> question. It took me 14 years, but we're getting there. Okay. So I would like to start off with this whole uh, sense of what we actually do know about sleep, both in terms of sleep patterns and what's what the processing is in the brain and also where it's happening in the brain so maybe you can talk me through i hear here some things uh rem sleep rem non-rem and all the rest of that so maybe you can start off by just telling me what these things are and and giving me a sense of the different stages of sleep that uh, so far as we know at least uh, our state of current understanding of all that yes yeah, so sleep at least within mammalian species has been broadly separated into two main types on the one hand, we have non-rapid eye movement sleep, or non-REM sleep for short. And non-REM sleep has been further subdivided into four separate stages, which have um, unimaginatively been called stages one through four. <laughs> uh, we're a creative bunch, sleep researchers. Um, but increasing in their depth of sleep. So stages three and four are those sort of really deep restorative stages of sleep. Can you quantify that, the depth of sleep? Like what, yeah, that's a good question. So. That, that word depth really has sort of several angles of explanation. One of them is that your sensory threshold for being woken up is actually sort of raised. So as a consequence, it's harder to bring you out of okay. stages three and four sleep and easier to bring you out, for example, stage one non-REM sleep. That's that light sleep onset phase where even just the creak of a door and right. you're back up. Whereas when you're in stages three and four deep sleep, the the sort of the creak of the door, it's very unlikely to wake you up. You're sort of okay. deep down in, in the depths of sleep. Also, the other reason that we call it sort of deep sleep is just because we get these big, slow, lazy brain waves that are happening during this stage of sleep. So when you're awake, your brain is sort of going up and down in terms of its electrical activity, maybe 40, 50, 60, 70 times per second. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you go into deep sleep, slow wave sleep stages three and four of non-REM, now your brain is going up and down maybe just three or four times per second. It's really slowed down. It's not dissimilar to some patterns of coma. Mm. 
The problem, by the way, is that that led us to believe that that state of sleep, deep sleep, slow wave sleep, stages three and four, was just a time when your brain was dormant and really not doing anything. Nothing further could be from the truth in terms of, of that statement. It turns out that what's happening is massive areas of your cortex, this folded massive tissue on top of the brain, all decide to chant and sing together in time. It's a highly synchronized. Oh, so they're resonating at, at, some, at some level, the whole, all, all of them. All of them. And huh. in a way that it never happens when we're awake. Huh. So uh, an analogy would be um, if you're at a football stadium and you've got a single microphone sort of dangling over the middle of the stadium, that's going to be your electrode on top of the head. Right. And underneath, you're going to be measuring the summed activity of hundreds of thousands of people. Now, before the game starts, let's say, everyone, each of those people in the stadium are sort of talking to each other, having different conversations, processing information, very much like when your brain is awake. So the chatter is frenetic and fast. Mm. When you go into deep, slow wave sleep, it's as if the whole entire stadium, all of those people have all decided to start chanting in time in a very slow rhythmic manner. Now, if you're at Berkeley, that, that chant would be Stanford sucks, for example. <laughs> um, but what's remarkable is that they've all synchronized They've all stopped having their individual chatter, fast frequency activity, and they're all just in this slow, rhythmic, sort of almost meditative, hmm. sort of synchronized activity. And we're only now starting to understand exactly what that synchronous activity is, but I'm, I'm sort of going off track. Essentially no, no, off what track is, is good. So that, that, that deep stage of sleep is both depth in terms of being able to wake you up, right. but sort of, all of also these deep, big, slow, synchronized, however, across, across, the, across the brain. Across the brain. And they principally start in the front of your brain, in the frontal lobe, and seem to sort of regress back. Hmm. But they can start anywhere. But the dominance of these deep, slow wave sleep uh, waves are over your frontal cortex. So it's a very strange state. Compare that, however, to then rapid eye movement sleep. Rapid eye movement sleep. Now, if all you were to measure would be the brain activity, it's indistinguishable from your brain activity when you're awake. Hmm. In fact, some parts of your brain are up to 30% more active when you're in REM sleep compared to when you're awake. Really? What, so were those the same parts of the brain that you were talking about before with dementia, that those are the parts that are triggered? When you said you were looking for the, the, the parts of the brain that were involved in sleep and when you were awake and when you weren't awake, remember what I'm... What yeah, I'm I do. But so is, that, is that the part of the brain that's more active? Is not necessarily, no. So these are deep emotional centers of the brain. Okay. And, and that gives us, that has started to point us towards perhaps some of the functional sort of reasons that we have REM sleep for emotional processing, and, and I hope to speak about those too. Yeah. So, so REM sleep is this sort of contrasting state. It's what we often would describe 30 or 40 years ago as paradoxical sleep. Paradoxical because you are recumbent, you're seemingly non-conscious. But there's so much activity going But your on. brain is frenetic in terms yeah. of its activity. One of the other interesting features of REM sleep is that the mechanisms that control REM and non-REM sleep are deep in the brainstem. And whilst that brainstem will send signals up to your cortex to express these patterns of deep slow wave sleep or active REM sleep, when you're in REM sleep, there's another signal that's sent south, as it were, down into your spinal cord. And that signal during REM sleep paralyzes all of what we call the alpha motor neurons in your spinal cord. In other words, what they, that results in is 
utter paralysis of your body. All of your voluntary skeletal muscles are inhibited during REM sleep. Okay. Why would, what, you, why that, would you do that? It seems, right. it seems certainly counter... I wanted to ask you about evolutionary arguments, but this term seems like a very counter-evolutionary right, situation. Right, it seems a very strange thing. Yeah. However, REM sleep is the principal stage during which you dream. Right. And so it's a safety mechanism. What you don't want to be doing when your eyes are closed and when your ears are not perceiving the outside world, and it's dark for us uh, humans, is to start acting out your dreams in your environment. So cleverly, your brain paralyzes your body so your mind can dream safely. You huh. stay in one place. Huh. So, so these two types of sleep, non-REM sleep and REM sleep, interestingly, will then play out in a battle for brain domination throughout the night. And that sort of cerebral war is going to be won and lost every 90 minutes in humans and then replayed every 90 minutes. And what that creates essentially is what we call a sleep cycle. And across the night, then you get a standard architecture of sleep. Right. So this is the sleep architecture that I've, that I've heard people That's talk right. about. Yeah. So you don't simply have all of your deep non-REM sleep first for five, six hours, and then all of your REM sleep second or vice versa. They keep flipping back and forth. This war, as I describe it, just keeps going on and on, won and lost, won and lost. And how much variation is there from person to person? Is it, is it roughly constant for everyone, or do some people have different gradations No, of it's, this? It's, it's quite variable from one person to the next. However, within any one individual, it's remarkably stable really? from one night to the next. In huh. fact, some people have argued that the electrical signature of your sleep, so not just the stages and the architecture, but you can sort of get an electrical sort of map of the brain activity during sleep, it's so highly replicable from one night to the next. It's almost like a sleep fingerprint. It's that specific wow. and that repeatable. Even if people take drugs. I mean, even if they take... if they. So once you start playing with pharmacology, then right. things will change okay. considerably, uh, as well as things like alcohol. But for the most part, as long as you're right. clean, as it were, um, <laughs> that, that electrical sort of signature is consistent within one individual from one night to the next. It does change across the lifespan, though. Okay. So that's one of the other interesting features of sleep, that um, how you slept when you were young, of course, is not how you slept when you were an adult, and it's not how you will sleep when you're older. Mm. When you were young, for example, the timing of your sleep is different. You would be going to bed early and you would wake up early. And then as you sort of go through adolescence, now that shifts forward. Now you want to go to bed late and wake up late, despite school times not allowing you to do that, and that's a whole issue right. uh, in and of itself. And then as you get older, that starts to shift back again. So you start to want to go to bed a little bit earlier and wake up a little bit earlier. Right. Um, now, there are remarkable differences from one individual to the other, even within the same age range, too. Some people are what we call owls. They like to go to bed late right. and wake up late. Others are larks. They like to go to bed early and wake up early. And we know the basis of that. It's genetic. So I wanted to ask you about this, a couple of related questions. So one is, looking at this sleep fingerprint of a particular individual, even as they get older, is it like the, the cycle of REM, non-REM sleep just mm. kind of gets compressed in some way? Or is it, uh, I mean, if you were to actually look at that, at that architecture, if you were to look at that fingerprint and say, okay, I understand that I don't have, I sleep at different times, I may not sleep as well, I may be lighter and so forth, but basically my my fingerprint is roughly the same as I, as I, as I age, or does, or does it change drastically? It changes, and it changes quite drastically. 
Okay. So within the space of, let's say, um, six months or a year, there's a good degree of stability. But once you start to fast forward in time, three or four years now, your sleep is already starting to change in significant ways from early adulthood, then into your 40s, 50s. And can you predict this in terms of the basic, this is the fingerprint of this person, and so we know basically what happens as they get older, so the signal will look more or less like that? Great question. It's a fundamental question, actually, and the answer is we don't know. And that's interesting because you're you're trying to suggest that sleep early in life may be an interesting biomarker, both of itself and how it will be resilient or vulnerable to deterioration over time. And perhaps as a consequence, the vulnerability of all of the other functions that we now know sleep supports also deteriorating as a consequence. So I think this is a, it's a very important question and one that we don't yet have a good understanding of, which is, is there something about sleep as a seed early on in life that then germinates into a predictive biological factor determining changes in sleep itself and subsequent disease states related to sleep deterioration. Um, And we, we don't know the answer to that. What we do know is that perhaps the most um, remarkable changes in your sleep with age are in that domain of deep slow wave sleep stages three and four. They, you can already start to see that the, the quality of that sleep in terms of how big those brain waves are and how much of the night that slow wave sleep comprises, right. that's already starting to change in your early 30s. That's how early these changes start to, to occur. By the time you're 50, you've almost lost 50% of that deep sleep that you would have had in your early 20s. On average. On average. On average. On yeah, average. Yeah, not, ev- not everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. You would, you, you, yeah, we could all be delusional about that individual hope. Um, by age 75 or 80, you're now down to about 10 to 5% wow. of slow-wave sleep existing anymore, deep slow-wave sleep stages 3 and 4 non-REM. So we've known about that deterioration for many years now. We've been able to plot that. But now, because we're starting to understand exactly what the functions of sleep are, particularly for these different stages of sleep, and different stages of sleep have different functions, we're now starting to understand that that change in sleep comes with a cost. It's not as though our sleep changes and nothing nothing changes. Functional abnormalities occur because of that, and we're now just starting to unpack those. So I, I want to get to those very badly, but before I do, a couple questions based on what you said. As you're talking about genetic markers, uh, an obvious thing to think of is is twin data. You you must have thought about this or looked at this or or, or whatever. So you've have, have there been any studies that look at the particular sleep fingerprint? This is sleep fingerprint is is my my recent. Uh, coining phrase, so I'm sure that's not in the, in the general literature, but, but, but the, the, whatever, the architecture, the individual signature uh, of, of a particular individual in terms of their REM sleep, their non-REM sleep, what you were talking about earlier, is that coupled uh, uh, statistically for people who are, who are twins? I mean, if, I'm, if I look at twin data, do I find, oh yeah, these people do tend to have similar sleep patterns? Or is that not actually the case? No, it is actually the case. And um, people have even looked at individual electrical um, bursts of activity that are unique to sleep. And even those little sort of um, inflections during sleep of electrical activity. And there there are specific forms. I'll give you an example. There's something called a sleep spindle. And this is a short burst of synchronous activity. It lasts for about a second. And so your brain waves are going along in non-REM sleep, the lighter stages normally, stage two, three, four. 
Um, and all of a sudden your brain will brrr, have a little burst of activity and it's called a sleep spindle. We've known about it for over 50 years now and we're starting to understand that it, it too has a functional purpose to it. But even these little bursts of activity, forget even the gross architecture of sleep, which is highly stable within monozygotic twins. Um, even their electrical bursts of brain activity within sleep itself are remarkably similar wow. based on that homology of genetics. So there certainly is a strong heritable genetic basis for our electrical sleep patterns. Absolutely. Cool. My, my second point before we get into uh, aging and memory and, and functionality and all, all of these wonderful things, um, when you were talking about uh, the, this response mechanism that the body has to anesthetize you or paralyze you when you're, when you're dreaming, I'm thinking, what about sleepwalkers? Are these, are these people, are they lacking something somewhere? Can you, can, you, can you point to some particular congenital issue with, with regards to those particular people? Very good question. So one of the misnomers about sleep is that sleepwalking and sleep talking is happening during REM sleep dreaming. Ah, oh, it's not. Okay. It's not. Okay. So <laughs> instead what's happening is that it's coming from the deeper stages of non-REM sleep, stages three and four oh, cool. of non-REM sleep. What's happening? What we seem to now know is that your brain is in this deep stage of slow wave sleep. And then something seems to try and trigger it to wake up, either an internal stimulation, the nervous system has a burst of electrical activity like a lightning bolt, or maybe an outside stimulus tries to wake the brain up. And the brain tries to go from the basement to the penthouse of wakefulness, but gets stuck somewhere in between. Okay. So the brain waves, as you're measuring them in the lab, still look nice and slow and lazy. Right. It would suggest that the patient is in deep non-REM sleep, but yet you can see on the video camera that they're walking around. They look like they're exhibiting waking behavior. Hmm. And so sleepwalking, sleep talking, sleep eating. Sleep eating? The sleep eating, <laughs> and it goes for the sleep texting now. Uh, and, and, but these things, they do seem to be. There's a really sleep they, texting they, they, and they sleep absolutely see. So you can see that the brain is still in deep, slow of sleep, yet they're enacting what seem to be very routine rote behaviors. It's nothing complex. They'll go over to the refrigerator, they'll open the door, get a glass of water, put it to the lips, put it down. They'll walk around the room. Yeah. Um, and so these are what we call parasomnias. In other words, disorders around sleep. So. And if you wake someone up who's having a sleepwalking episode and say, um, sort of tell me what was going through your mind, they often cannot tell you anything. Nothing was in their mind at the time. Hmm. In other words, they weren't they dreaming. They were just on autopilot. They somehow. were just in this sort of huh. autopilot mode yeah. of motor behavior. So that's sleepwalking and sleep talking. However, it's not to say that odd things can't happen from REM sleep. They can and they do. There is another disorder called rapid eye movement sleep behavioral disorder or REM sleep behavioral disorder. Here what happens is that that paralysis that we spoke about that locks the body, at least all of the voluntary skeletal muscles, into place so you're paralyzed, that paralysis starts to um, become impaired as it were. So what happens is people are going into REM sleep and they start to act out their dreams. The reason seems to be that the brainstem mechanism that I told you about mm. that releases a signal down into the spinal cord to inhibit all of those muscles, that part of the brain starts to deteriorate. And that degradation in that part of the brain that sends the signal prevents that signal right. from being sufficiently 
triggered. Right. And so these people start to act out their dreams and they can be quite violent. People sure. have injured their spouses. There right. are even remarkable cases where people have murdered their spouses in their sleep. I mean, it's unthinkable, right. unthinkable things. But, and So this is obviously a reason why for most people that doesn't happen. I mean, this is a good, a clear evidence of the fact that evolution seems to be seems to have been doing things in the correct way by, for most people, paralyzing them in this, this skeletal Absolutely. situation. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it makes complete sense. Um, so it's, so even there, I mean, it, it's, it's such a bizarre state. I mean, and when you think about sleep, just, just generally, and you back up, I mean, it seems like the very worst thing that evolution could have ever designed. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you're, you you're vulnerable also. to prey, right. you're not finding food, you're not socially interacting as a group, you're not finding a mate. This is disastrous. Right. And there's a great quote from one of the founding fathers of sleep, Alan Rechtschaffen, who said, if sleep doesn't serve an absolutely vital function, it's the biggest mistake evolution ever made. And so, and when you think about all of these remarkably complex mechanisms that have to have evolved to keep us in sleep, deep slow wave sleep, REM sleep, paralysis, that's a vast evolutionary cost to go towards. What that tells us is that sleep must be essential at the most basic of biological levels if it still has persisted through evolution, it's fought its way through, despite right. all of those negatives. Right. And in fact, what's another sort of you know, checkbox in its favor is that sleep has been observed in every species that we've studied to date. So again, if it's so common across phylogeny, it's do? pervasive. Right. You know, so sleep, you know, together with eating, drinking, and reproducing, it's, it, it is the fourth main biological drive. What's striking is that we've known the functions of those other three that I mentioned right. for hundreds, if not thousands of years. The reason that we sleep, the fourth biological drive remains a mystery. So, well, not entirely a mystery. So this is a perfect segue. I'm, as I was listening to you speak, I'm thinking it's not even entirely clear that I have to be here. So, <laughs> so <laughs> going on to the function. So uh, let's look at your investigations in terms of some possible understanding as to what these functions, aspects of these functions are in terms of the, the link to memory, the, the, the link to emotions, the, the, the link to learned acquisition of various skills and so forth. Um, maybe you could start talking a little bit about what you've learned and what the current state of research is in terms of some concrete, if not evidence, at least strong suggestions we have for believing some specific aspects of the utility of sleep. Yeah, so sort of coming on to that last point, the sort of the utility of sleep, I would say that 20 years ago, the, the question or the way the question was posed was, what is the function of sleep? What does sleep do? Now, 20 years later, the question is essentially being turned on its head. Is there anything that sleep does not benefit? Is there anything that doesn't go awry when you don't get sleep? And right. is there anything that doesn't gain an advantage when you do get sleep, both every tissue in the body and every process within the brain? Right. What we have been focused on is the benefit of sleep for brain function. And there seems to be at least two benefits. One is in information processing, learning and memory, mm -hmm. brain plasticity. And the second is in regulating our emotions, preparing us for next day social and psychological interactions, which has a very strong thematic thread to psychiatric disorders and sleep disruption. Mm -hmm. So perhaps I'll, I could take the first uh, one with sleep and memory. What we've understood to date is that sleep is important in at least three different aspects of learning and memory. The first is that you need to sleep before learning 
to prepare your brain essentially like a dry sponge and very specific parts of your brain ready to soak up new information the next day. Hmm. So in other words, people who had the idea that you could pull the all-nighter and then learn effectively are, it, are desperately delusional. If you take sleep away just for one night, the ability of your brain to learn basic facts, textbook-like facts, is decreased by 40% for zero, which, if you want to put it in an educational context, would simply be the difference between acing an exam and failing it miserably. So there's a sense of preparing, of prepping the brain for remembering somehow that sleep does. It exactly. Whitewashing or whatever it is. Yeah. Okay. And what we, so, and we, you can look at both sides of that, that coin. You could say, what is the, the detriment to your capacity for new learning when you haven't had sleep? But furthermore, what is it about sleep when you do get it that seems to restore and refresh right. that right. learning capacity? And we've been able to answer both sides of that. Okay. Firstly, what we know is that when you take sleep away and when someone has not had sufficient sleep the night before, there's a very specific structure in the brain called the hippocampus which is the quintessential reservoir for where you create new fact-based textbook-like memories. Where is the hippocampus exactly? The hippocampus, you have two of them, just like you have in, for most all brain structures, one right. on the left, one right. on the right. And it comes down, it sort of starts at the, at the back of the head. It's almost like this long, slightly bent cigar that starts up at the back and curls down around to the front. And we know that, for example, if you damage that structure or surgically that structure is removed due to things like epilepsy, you become densely amnesic. Mm. You can no longer form any new memories. It is the very same structure that sleep deprivation will attack and block your brain's capacity for new learning. Mm. So, so we've understood the, the detriment that happens when you don't get sleep and where in the brain that damage is occurring. And by the way, we don't know if, that, if that's reversible. We don't know how quickly your hippocampus, or if at all, it can sort of come back after recovery sleep. It's one of those interesting questions. But let me sort of try to add a bit of brightness to the story, which is, okay, but when you're getting good sleep, how does that work? What's the mechanism right. of benefit? And this brings me back to those sleep spindles that I was talking about before. Right. What we found is that the amount of these sleep spindles that you're having at night seem to accurately predict the degree to which your hippocampus is refreshed and restored in terms of its renewed learning capacity the next day. Okay. So the analogy would be... So you can integrate these spindles over time somehow? And you say, can measure them over time and you can measure them over the brain as right, well. Right. And it seems to be that these sleep spindles, especially over the frontal part of the brain, which has direct connections to the hippocampus, which is deep within the, the, the central, uh, the central uh, line of the brain, the more of those spindles that you're having over this front, uh, frontal part of the brain, the greater the degree of refreshment of your learning the next day. Okay, but so I'm not a I'm not a biologist, uh, and I don't pretend to be. But I, I always find that uh, I get confused by some of these analogies, and I ask myself, what's what's actually happening at the molecular genetic? Like if I can suddenly look deeply. So I understand what it is to refresh. So there's a lot of activity going on in my brain in this particular region, and you can tie that empirically to people's ability to remember things, to learn things, and so hence you have an empirical justification for refreshment. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but then I think, okay, what's, what's the mechanism? What's, happen what's, <laughs> yeah. what's actually happening? I mean, you must have some 
theory, some ideas, some We do, and there's thing. good evidence now if you combine the studies in humans with studies, for example, in rodents, in rats, you get an interesting uh, picture. I'll start with an analogy and then I'll sort of overlay biology on top of that. The analogy would be that the hippocampus is like a USB stick. Okay. It's very good at grabbing information on the fly from different sources. But like a USB stick, it has a limited storage capacity. Whereas your cortex, this massive tissue on top, that's essentially like the hard drive. And what we think happens is that during sleep, after you've acquired lots of information during the day on your hippocampus USB stick, the hippocampus will then essentially have a therapy session with the cortex and they'll have a dialogue right. during sleep, during which time the hippocampus, your USB stick, will offload its information up to the cortex, the massive storage space hard drive of your brain. Right. And there are two benefits which will then nicely bring me on to the second of the three functions of, of sleep in terms of memory, which is protecting and saving memories that you learned the day before. So the, there's two benefits to this dialogue, this therapy session. Firstly, information that was on the hippocampus, the USB stick, gets put on the hard drive and now it's safe in a, in a larger storage capacity. Right. What's also, however, nice is that the second benefit downstairs in your hippocampus, in your USB stick, is when you up. wake up, you've up cleared it. out the yeah. hippocampus <laughs> USB stick. So now what you learned yesterday is safely on the hard drive and your hippocampus, your USB stick, is now ready for new learning the next day. Right. So it's this beautiful reciprocity that happens. How is that happening? What we know from animal studies and now from some evidence in humans is that there is in the hippocampus, when you're learning specific information, there are signature firing patterns coding what you're learning. There's a signature of memory hmm. nested in the firing of how cells are sort of mapping that information. And you can measure that. And let's just say that you can add a sound to each of those cells. And maybe let's say as a rat is learning a maze and you're recording from those cells in the hippocampus, you hear bum, 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 bum. And that's the sound of, of the memory trace right. being laid down. Right. What's remarkable is that when they go into non-REM sleep, when you're getting these sleep spindles and these slow waves, and if you turn back on the recording device, what do you hear? Oh, really? What's remarkable no. is you start to hear, bum, 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 bum. No. what's strange is that it's sped up by any, a factor of perhaps almost 20. Brum, 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 brum. And what we believe this is reflecting is exactly the replay of the memory traces from the hippocampus up to the cortex. So there is really quite good biological evidence for this type of a therapy session dialogue actually happening. I mean, that's the, a nice analogy, but there's actually hard neurobiology cool. underlying it. Cool. And this is, but this is happening in non-REM sleep, you're it saying, is. right? So what's happening in REM sleep? What's, what's the... Yeah, so, so maybe I can... Sorry, I interrupted you in your... So maybe I can, I sort of, yeah, I'll go back to the last yeah. two functions of sleep right, because right, REM sorry. sleep actually comes on to sort of sleep and emotional processing. Right. So, right. so essentially I've already started to describe the second benefit of sleep, which is that you not only need to sleep before learning to get your brain ready to initially acquire that information by clearing out the USB stick, but once you've filled the USB stick up, you also need to sleep after learning to then grab a hold of that new information and solidify it and cement it into the neural architecture of the brain. What I mean by that is this, what we believe right. is a transfer process, right. taking it from the fragile, vulnerable state of the USB stick 
up into the more permanent, solid situation, which is your cortex, your hard drive. And that also seems to depend on deep non-REM sleep. And as a consequence, if you sleep after learning, you gain this sort of cementing this, this um, these memories are not going to be deteriorated by the ravages of time. You're not going to forget over time. However, if you remain awake, for example, across the night, if you pull another all-nighter, the memories that you have, because they don't have the chance to go right. to sleep and have the dialogue and the right. transfer, they, can't get they degrade. Right. Yep. So the, you get accelerated forgetting. So that's the second function of sleep, that sleep will then take things that you've just learned. And if you've had a good night of sleep before, you'll have had efficient learning to begin with. Then you need sleep after learning to grab that and, and those individual memories and strengthen them. And that was probably the, the view of sleep and memory until about five or six years ago, until we started to realize that there was a third benefit. And this third benefit, which actually may relate to REM sleep, it's unclear right now. The third benefit is that sleep also seems to be far more intelligent than simply grabbing individual memories and saving them. Sleep actually seems to be able to take different types of information and start to interconnect them yeah, and coordinate their association. Huh. And so that you create um, patterns of more general knowledge. So for example, we know that memories do not sit as an isolate island within your brain. They would be profoundly useless like that. Memories instead are richly interconnected in these webs of association. How and when does the brain decide to build those associations? Which associations should it create and which should it not? Mm. And certainly when we're awake during the day, I'm sure that's a time when your brain starts to understand that one thing should be linked to another. Maybe. Sometimes. But uh, yeah, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's not so good. Um, however, sleep also seems to be a time where the brain does this, but in a slightly different way. I think what's happening, and we've got some emerging evidence now, is that during the day when you're awake, it's the obvious direct connections that the brain starts to identify and create. During sleep, it's as though you go to the other end of the spectrum. It's as though you start to fuse things together that at first really shouldn't normally go together. Right. But it turns out that occasionally when they do, they cause marked advances in evolutionary fitness. Basis of, basis of sort of memory, biological creativity. And so it, it's almost as though when you're awake, it's sort of a Google search gone right. It's sort of, you know, you input sort of coffee mug in it. The first page is, right. you know, about right. you know, Amazon and you can buy coffee. But during sleep and perhaps during REM sleep and dreaming, instead, when you start to try these associative algorithms, now the first hits that you get are page 20, which is about some field hockey game in Utah. Right. <laughs> Where did that come from? It turns out if you look into it, there is a very strange, bizarre link. And what seems to be happening during sleep and perhaps during REM sleep is that you're testing out associations. It's a little bit like memory pinball, that you're taking what you've learned during the day right. and then you're saying, okay, let me launch it up into this attic of everything that I've learned before in my past experience. And you bounce it around these nodes. But this seems to make sense. Maybe I'm just, uh, maybe I'm just too easy to convert. But this seems to make sense in, in a way because if you think during the day, 
you don't have as much processing power to devote to this sort of thing. You've got all sorts of other things going on. You have to stay focused. You have to be looking, as you say, to take your analogy at page one of Google if you're bringing something up. But when you're relieved of all of those things, when you, when you can actually, when your brain doesn't have to be focused with all of that, you, can, you have the luxury of being able to go all over the map, which presumably involves a little bit more time, making more connections from an evolutionary perspective, maybe doing, taking long shots or... or yeah. and, but, and this also anecdotally seems to be reinforced by a very common experience that most people have, this whole idea of, well, you're going to sleep on something or, right. or, or, or you can come up with some really interesting ideas when you're sleeping. I think most people have this experience. They wake up and they, they've, they've had some ideas. And so this seems to be very much in keeping with, with, with that possibility. Yeah, I mean, when was the last time anyone ever told you you should stay awake on a problem? Right. <laughs> yeah, and there's a reason you know, for that. It's crass, but it's, um, you know, certainly, uh, so I like the, the, your thought, and it, it reminds me in some ways, when you're awake, it's about reception. Right. When you're asleep, it's about reflection. Right. And reflection is not just simply taking stuff that you've learned and hitting the save button on it. It's also about starting to try and understand what you've learned. Right, it's a creative process. So it's a creative process. So it's not just simply knowledge, which yeah. is holding on to what you've learned. Right. It's about wisdom, which is knowing what it all means when you fit it together. Right. And I think that now we're starting to understand is the, a third function of sleep, perhaps one of the ultimate functions of sleep. And you're right that you can even look within science and there are sort of innumerable classic scientific discoveries that have come by way of dream-inspired insight. Dmitri Mendeleevy put together the periodic table of elements, the fundamental elements in our universe, by way of sleep-inspired insight. Otto Loewy won a Nobel Prize for discovering neural transmission, how chemicals are released from one brain cell to the next. He designed those experiments in his sleep, if you believe it. You know, and it goes beyond science. Paul McCartney wrote all sorts of wonderful Beatles tunes. Yesterday, let it the, be. This is the whole Liverpudlian thing. I mean, I knew you were going to get there eventually. Every I was, interview I, was I do, I have to try and give a shout out to one of my sort of brethren from Liverpool. The Nobel yeah. Prize and then Paul McCartney. Is, yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, it was uh, seamless, wasn't yeah. it? Um, it? So, um, but I mean, there's, there's also, there's great demonstrations of, of this sort of, of how people use what you described. They know comes from sleep, which is this creative tool. There's a great example, Thomas Edison, who actually turns out has a lot to answer for in terms of how we're sleeping. And people would often say to me, well, Edison, this brilliant creative guy, he was supposed to be a short sleeper. Mm. Now we don't know, and there's some argument as to whether he was or not. It turns out even if he was a short sleeper at night, he was a habitual napper during the day. And in fact, he would use naps for creative insight. This is genius. What he would do, and this is a, such a, a mark of the man, he would have a piece of paper and a pencil, he'd put it next to his desk, then he would get a metal saucepan and he would turn it upside down and place it underneath the armrest here. Then he would take two steel ball bearings in his hand, rest the back of his arm on, on the armrest of the chair, and then he would slowly start to fall asleep. And so he didn't go too far into sleep. This is where the steel ball bearings would come in. So at some point, his muscle tone would relax sufficiently where he would release the steel ball bearings. Mm -hmm. They would crash on the saucepan, wake, wake him up, and then he would start to write down all of the ideas that he was getting from sleep. Absolutely brilliant. So it's not only understood from this sort of anecdotal perspective. Clearly, people were actually using it as a tool, as a tool right. for creativity. So, so in terms of sleep and information processing now, we understand sleep is vitally necessary 
at many steps of memory processing, the formation of memories, the holding on to memories, and then starting to interconnect and stitch those memories together so that you can understand the big picture rules and the gist of what we call this world that we live in. That, that seems to be the... So it's, it's, I'm sure, too preliminary, but you must have some suspicions as to how best to harness this in terms of our, our own sleep cycles. I understand everybody's a little bit different. Um, but if I'm aware of all of these bits of knowledge that you're telling me, and I have some rigorous understanding of some aspects, or at least some well-founded, well-reasoned judgments as to what might be the, the utility of all of these different activities, how would that affect me in terms of how I might go about approaching my own sleep cycle, whether I'm sleeping too much, whether I'm not sleeping enough. You mentioned napping as a possible way to, to go about doing things. Are, are you at a stage when you can say, well, you might want to try to sleep this amount per day, or you should go see your sleep therapist to find out what your ultimate profile would be. If I want to make myself as productive as possible, if I want to have my memory as, as sharp as possible, if I want to be as creative as possible, how can I go about doing that? So, what we currently know now is that once you start to get less than about seven hours of sleep a night, you can start to measure impairments in people's function. So the reason I bring that up is it suggests that somewhere between seven and a half to eight and a half hours of sleep a night for every average adult human being is about the optimal. One of the frightening things that seems to happen with insufficient sleep is that your subjective opinion of how you're doing with too little sleep is a miserable predictor of right. objectively how you're doing. So this is that sort of classic case of people saying, you know, I can survive on six hours of sleep. You know, sure, Doc, I know that you tell me all about this stuff with sleep, but I'm, I'm one of those who is a-okay with success. And then I say, no, I know that you think right. you're okay. And the analogy would be the, you know, the guy at the bar, the drunk driver, who after six shots of vodka picks up his car keys and says, yeah. I'm completely unimpaired. I'm yeah. No, no, I know that you think you're not, but it's a dangerous situation. And the same danger underlies insufficient sleep. It's funny, I, I, I want to get back to the, letting you answer the question, but I was just talking to Steve Hinshaw yesterday, and he said something remarkably similar in terms of people who do not have ADHD and uh, who are taking ADHD medication. And they feel that they're improving, they can focus, they're, they're much, much better. And when you actually look at the results that they're doing, yeah. they're no better at all. They're, yeah. they're, they're, so anyway, but, but so, so granted people feel better, they, they think they can survive on six hours of sleep, but most people actually can't. Is, is, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's an utter misnomer. So what about napping in, in between, or what about staggering that time, or is it so important to have a seven and a half full hours of sleep? Is it, could I break it up into two and a half hour segments, or so Churchill did that, didn't he? Wasn't he, wasn't he supposed to be sleeping every so, six hours for two so hours? Or Churchill like certainly had a very erratic sleep profile, and he, was, he suffered from significant major depression, and that's probably mm. one of the reasons for his underlying sort of <laughs> okay. sleep sleep issues. Not a good um, but there's current debate right now as to how exactly we should be sleeping naturalistically, how we were designed or how we evolved to sleep. Um, certainly, we currently in sort of industrialized nations commonly sleep in what, what I would call a monophasic pattern. We have one bout of long sleep at night, and then we're awake for 16 hours, and we should be sleeping eight hours, 24 hours. There is argument that we perhaps should be sleeping biphasically a somewhat long bout during the night, maybe six and a half, seven, and then an afternoon nap, that sort of siesta-like Mediterranean behavior. Yeah. Why would I argue that? Well, it turns out that you can measure people's biological alertness 
and also drops or dips in their alertness that will send them towards sleep. And there's a variety of measures that you can assess, but let's just say that we have these measures. What seems to happen is that as you're going throughout the day, your sort of alertness and your attention and your physiological desire to stay awake starts to deteriorate and it will really start to drop down around about, for most people, sort of 10, 11, midnight. And then as you get through to the early morning hours, that activation within your nervous system starts to rise back up again mm-hmm. and you start to wake up. And by 11, 12 o'clock, midday, you're now nicely alert. Right. What's strange, however, is that once you get to two or three in the afternoon, you're coming down again. You start to come down again, and then you'll come back up 5, 6 p.m. Right. That's just so true. And it's right there. And it's, you know, everyone's had this experience of being in a sort of a warm room. They've had a big lunch. Yeah, They're yeah. at the big meeting table. Somebody's giving a presentation. Yeah. And you especially get all when of they these... give a presentation. Yeah, 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 especially if it's me giving the presentation. there, And you, you get all of these sort of interesting sort of, you know, head nod. Now, it's not that people listen to good music. They're falling prey to this sort of, this dip in their alertness, which would argue that were biologically predisposed to trying to go into this sleep pattern in the middle of the afternoon. Right. You have to be careful with naps though, because there's a double-edged sword. Okay. The way that we develop tiredness and sleepiness, or one of the ways at least we know, is that the longer that you're awake, the more that a chemical builds up in your brain that forces it to go to sleep. That chemical is called adenosine. It's a byproduct of cellular metabolism. The more of it that you have, the more sleepy that you feel. And at some point, it gets so potent in such high concentrations that you can't resist sleep and you fall asleep. And then when you're in sleep, that adenosine is removed out of the system. So think of it like a pressure cooker. It starts to build up and this pressure to sleep develops. And then when you go into sleep, the pressure valve is released. How does, how does it get removed physically? What's actually going on with this? this so we, we, what we find is that the, that deep, slow wave sleep again seems to offer a biological mechanism to clear out the buildup of adenosine at the cellular level. And by removing it and degrading it, you start to sort of take away that sleep pressure and the brain naturally rises back up to wakefulness, which is going to happen late in the morning. Okay. And so, The reason that naps can be potentially a little bit dangerous is that, let's say you wake up at eight o'clock in the morning or seven, you're building up these concentrations of adenosine across the day, and you're on a nice trajectory to fall asleep at 10 or 11 at night, and then you take a nap in the middle of the day, and naturally you'll dissipate some of that sleep pressure, so you'll go down again. And then as a consequence, come bedtime, 10 or 11, you're not going to feel as tired anymore. So you're going to stay up maybe one or two in the morning. And then what's going to happen is you're going to want to sleep long the next day. But unfortunately, your work day gets you up too early for that sleep. So you have to be a bit careful. It can cause you problems falling asleep. It can cause issues with insomnia. Not with all people, but some. So so naps, it's interesting. It's a a sort of an almost an anthropological question of how as a society we we should be sleeping. Um, By the way... The idea that we should force ourselves awake in the morning rather than letting our brain do it naturally is utterly artificial. I mean, if you speak to cultures that haven't been touched by electricity, is there any alarm call that they have? No, it's profoundly odd. And the first alarm clock was the factory whistle. I mean, that's how society began waking up on mass. I'm gonna make sure my children don't don't watch this part. <laughs> just in case they're gonna say, Dad, we've got all of the good reason now just to sleep late. Um, but it is an odd thing that we wrench our brain artificially out of something that it desperately right. needs. All of the species, they, they don't do that either. 
So, so when you, this brings up another idea, uh, another topic, when you talk about artificiality. So I'm thinking about people who take sleep medication and tranquilizers. Would it have the same effect that cleansing out uh, this, this thing that starts with an A that I can no longer remember? Adenosine. Thank you. Because uh, <laughs> I, could, I could imagine uh, that it might not. Because people say these, uh, say these things like, well, yeah, I was asleep, but it wasn't the same sort of sleep. It was a chemically induced sleep and yeah. so forth. So I, I'm imagining that even though they are, to all intents and purposes, uh, sleeping, just like everybody else would be sleeping, different processes are actually going on in their brain, and they don't have this cleansing process to the same extent that somebody who would sleep, fall asleep naturally might. Is that true, or is that not the case, or do you have, do you have any sense of that? It's, a, it's, it's perhaps one of the most fundamental questions that has not been thoroughly answered yet, which is, what is the effect of sleep medications? And the reason it's so fundamental is that if you look at the numbers and you believe the numbers, millions of people every single night, just here in the U.S. alone, are utilizing these sleep medications. Mm. And do we know that they change the architecture of sleep? Yes, they do. These common sleep medications, and I won't name them for liability, but uh, many of them that are currently being used today, they, they don't seem to give you the um, necessarily the depth of deep sleep that you would normally get. They may also reduce the amount of rapid eye movement sleep that you get. Mm. Now roll the clock back 15 years and it was even worse the old drugs that we used to call the sedative hypnotics. Um, these were sort of um, drugs like benzodiazepines, um, sort of tranquilizer-like drugs. Certainly, when you took those drugs at night, you were not awake. Nobody's going to argue that you were awake when you took those drugs. To argue that you were in sleep would actually be very difficult based on the patterns of brainwave activity. Mm. You were simply sedated. <laughs> it's the same way with alcohol. People think alcohol is a useful way to try and get to sleep if they're having sleep problems. Alcohol doesn't induce sleep. Alcohol sedates you. So, and worse, alcohol will actually reduce the amount of REM sleep that you have and fragment your sleep. So what does it mean in terms of brainwaves when you're sedated? You have the same activity just modulated somehow? Like what, what, what does that actually mean, sedated? Yeah, so essentially the brain um, is not showing patterns of normal waking electrical activity, but it also isn't necessarily a pattern that is prototypical of sleep either. Right. It's a different pattern of electrical activity. And those deep slow wave uh, patterns that we spoke about before of nice, deep, naturalistic sleep, right. they start to become altered by these types of sleep medications. And how much of that deep sleep that you have, and particularly the electrical quality of that sleep, starts to change as a function of taking these drugs. Okay. So certainly I think one of the important questions, especially considering that perhaps the prescription age of those drugs is starting to decrease as well now, is how is that impacting the normal functions that we now know sleep seems to serve, especially things like learning memory and emotional regulation? And we currently don't have good answers to those questions. There may be um, wrestling matches between how those studies are funded. Maybe some of the drug, study, uh, the drug companies sorry, are not that eager to fund those studies because what would happen if you found that people are sleeping now eight, eight and a half hours, and not getting but they're not getting the benefit, right. and perhaps worse, they're actually getting deterioration. Mm -hmm. um, I know of one study that um, was looking at how the brain seems to rewire itself in sleep, and we know this now, that the brain can also make new connections. It's, it's not like a hard-coded circuit board, cool. the brain. Um, the brain is very plastic, and that plastic reorganization, based on what we've learned during the day, happens during sleep. But what they found was that 
if you dose uh, rats or um, other animals with these types of drugs, yes, they seem to have sleep, but that rewiring doesn't take place. There isn't the normal nice plasticity that helps the brain with learning and memory. And if anything, in fact, it was actually impaired. It wasn't simply that it wasn't happening. It was, becoming it was going in the opposite direction. Yeah, exactly. Huh. So it's, it's one study that I know um, by uh, Dr. Marcus Frank, a remarkable study. And I think it's, it, it's a frightening demonstration, perhaps, that perhaps the electrical and the physiological quality of our sleep is so non-naturalistic on such medications right. that it not only prevents you from getting the benefit, it may cause a detriment. Now, there's much work to be done. We don't know if that's necessarily the case, and I'm not trying to scaremonger people from these No, no, but it's all the but, more reason why to, to conduct a research that to motivate these studies. Absolutely. Also, I think people should be aware that you don't necessarily need pharmacology to improve your sleep, even in severe insomnia. There are now very good behavioral techniques. There's one called cognitive behavioral therapy. It's the first line choice, a non-pharmacological choice, and it's remarkably efficacious. What, what is it? What, how does so that... it's a whole stream of individual um, manipulations to help, and people take sort of several days to sort of learn these techniques. But it's a collection of individual factors that help alter your behavior to get good sleep. So, for example, um, not being in the bedroom when you're awake, so not lying there for too long and being awake if you're not falling asleep because then the brain starts to associate being in bed with wakefulness, not sleep. So get up, get out the bed. You can start to short sleep people, which sounds counter to what you're trying to do, but to begin with, you reduce the amount of sleep that they're getting. You build up the adenosine, you build up that sleep pressure, and then subsequent nights, they start to fall asleep far more easily, and they start to gain that confidence and psychological reinforcement so that they can sleep. They learn how to sleep. Exactly. So there's, and it's this and many more different um, features that are built into this program called cognitive behavioral therapy. And, and it seems to both create not just naturalistic sleep, but long lasting effects in ways that drugs, once you stop taking them, don't provide right. you. So, so again, it's not to suggest that pharmacology can't be useful for short-term no, insomnia, course, but for chronic insomnia, cognitive behavioral therapy and non-pharmacological ways seems to be very efficacious. Well, the more we know, obviously, the better off we're going to be uh, with, with all techniques, with all aspects, uh, positive, negative, and so forth. You mentioned emotional regulation a couple of times. Well, I, I don't know what that is. Uh, so, so can you tell me what that is and, and tell me how sleep affects it? Yeah, so I think, so emotional regulation seem, uh, simply means that we're able to deploy our emotions effectively, but also control our emotions effectively. So if you think about people who are irrational or excessively emotional, they seem to make non-optimal choices and decisions because their, their, their emotions sort of just overpower their rational, logical decision-making. But also the inverse can be true. People can suffer from a lack of emotion. If you think about depression, one of the hallmarks of depression is something called anhedonia. It's a fancy term. It simply means you can't gain pleasure from normally pleasurable things. It's one of the defining features of depression. So there is a case of where there's not enough emotion happening. So emotion, unlike sort of learning and memory, which you sort of, it's just a linear function, the more of it that you have, the better, presumably. With emotion, it's sort of this inverted U function. Right. That sort of too little is not good. Right. You know, enough is optimal and too much is also not good. And it seems to be that we're now understanding that sleep will place you, as long as you're getting it, and particularly REM sleep, in that optimal sweet spot right at the top of that inverted U so that you can control your emotions. You don't have too much. 
but you also have sufficient amounts. So what evidence do we have for that? How, how, how does that work? Yeah, so we've explored this question again by sort of using this bi-directional approach. You can dial sleep down and take it away with deprivation right. and see if you can trigger an amplified emotional reaction from the brain as a consequence. And then you can give sleep back and sort of dial it up, maybe even insert sleep where it normally wouldn't be by using a nap during the day to see if you can then cause sort of this nice palliative amelioration of emotional reactivity. And so for the former, when you take sleep away, what you find is that deep centers within the brain, centers called the amygdala, and you have one on the left and right. The amygdala is this sort of kingpin of your emotional reactivity. That part of the deep emotional brain becomes excessively reactive when you have not slept. That center of the brain is amplified in its reactivity towards negative experiences. So for example, we can take people with sleep deprive them or give them a good night of sleep. Then we place them inside the MRI scanner and we'll show them increasingly negative and unpleasant images to see how the brain's right. reacting. And when you've had a good night of sleep, it's not as though your brain isn't reacting. It is, and it should be, but it's reacting in a controlled way. There's a moderate reaction. But in those people who are sleep deprived, you get this excessive reaction. The emotional brain is more than 60% amplified in terms of its reactivity to negative experiences without a night of sleep. And this is the signal itself that you're looking at or their exactly. reactions? Exactly. It, it's the signal within this structure, the amygdala, and you can look at it with these MRI images and you can assess how strongly, how brightly it's burning in reaction to these images. You can wow. quantify that empirically and that's how you can measure the difference and obtain a number like 60% in terms cool. of an amplification. What's also interesting though is the question why? Why is this deep emotional brain center so excessively reactive without sleep? And using some additional analyses, what you can uh, demonstrate is that when you do get a night of sleep, there's another part of your brain here in the frontal lobe and the middle part of the frontal lobe that sits right between your eyes. That part of the brain after a night of sleep is strongly connected to this deep emotional center, the amygdala. Why is that important? Well, we know it's important because this part of your frontal lobe, and the frontal lobe is like the CEO of the brain, it makes high-level executive decisions. Mm -hmm. That seems to be regulating the amygdala with negative inhibition. In other words, the frontal lobe is the, the break to your emotional right. gas pedal, don't, don't which worry is the about amygdala. This and it's okay. Yeah, or sort of, you know, worry about it, but to a certain degree, yeah. you know. So you've got this nice balanced mix between the gas pedal and the brake. Huh. But without sleep, that frontal lobe region was in terms of its connection had been severed from the amygdala. Hmm. And now as a consequence, without sleep, you've become all emotional gas pedal and no break. You're all deep Neanderthal reptilian brain reaction and no frontal lobe human classic rational regulation. So, and what's interesting about that is that same type of profile of abnormal brain activity has also been associated in conditions like PTSD where you get sleep disruption and you this get post-traumatic stress, post stress disorder. Yeah, classic shell shock as it used to be known. Right. Um, so that's the bad that happens when you take sleep away. The question then becomes, well, now when you get sleep, what is it about that sleep? And what we found here is that unlike learning and memory, which seems to be perhaps related more so to non-REM sleep, now for emotional processing and emotional health, mental health, it seems to be REM sleep. And one of the benefits here seems to be that REM sleep can take emotional experiences that you had the day before and essentially then 
act like assess a them? soothing balm. Sorry? Assess them somehow? Or, um, or? It, it both, we, well, we believe it both assesses them by reactivating them and bringing them back into play. So as I mentioned early on, during REM sleep, these emotional centers of the brain become active once right. more. Right. And we believe that does allow you to sort of bring those emotional experiences from the day or the prior days back into play, as it were. But there's a remarkable feature about REM sleep, which is that there is a particular stress neurochemical within the brain. It's called noradrenaline or norepinephrine. And when you're having stressful experiences, you know, if we were to experience an earthquake right now, this chemical noradrenaline would spike in our brain and it would help burn emotionally difficult or traumatic memories into the circuits of our brain. Right. During REM sleep, despite those same emotional centers in the brain being reactivated, that stress neurochemical is suppressed in REM sleep. And what we believe this offers is a chemical cocktail that is perfect for almost a, a sort of a therapy session again. It's as though you can reprocess these trauma memories, but in a brain state that's devoid of any stress chemistry. Wow. So essentially REM sleep acts like this soothing balm. You can go in and bring back these emotional memories to mind, and perhaps this is what part of dreaming is about too, but start to essentially strip away that bitter emotional rind from the informational orange of the experience. Interesting. So you can deal with it. As so a, as you can essentially deal with it. Huh. And it's, of course, the reason that you have emotion when you're sort of awake and learning is so that the brain can red flag and prioritize salient experiences. So it's good at the time of learning. But what we've argued is that it's not good to hold on to that stress blanket of emotion around the memory long term because otherwise what you have is a state of chronic anxiety right. in your autobiographical memory networks. Right. And we think REM sleep offers a perfect environment to essentially strip away that emotional blanket from the core of the experience. So that after several cycles of sleep or several nights of sleep, what you come back with when, when you wake up is a memory of an emotional event, right. but is no longer emotional itself. It, it might even be looked at, uh, this is just obviously speculating, I have no idea, but it, it might even be looked at that when that's happening, the brain is almost tagging that event so that it can reprocess it later on during REM sleep and maybe exactly. somehow analyze it. I don't really know, deal with it, whatever you want to say. Yep. But it's, it's like, this is an important thing going on. Exactly. We'll get to it later. <laughs> well, so it's, it's as though it raises the red flag of importance right. during wakefulness and tags it. Right. But then it's saying, okay, the information of that experience is important and we'll tell you it's important by sort of packaging it right. in this outside sort of wrap of emotion. Right. But that emotion isn't beneficial or adaptive from an evolutionary perspective to, to, to maintain long-term. Because if that was true, every time you recollected important things from your past, not only would you be able to recollect the information and use it usefully, unfortunately what you would do is regurgitate the same visceral reaction right. of emotion that you had at the time of learning. And that's not good. No, it's not good at all. It's terribly wasteful as well. And it's, it's... Right. It's, it, and it burn, burns right. energy, which is always an evolutionary bad idea. So... Um, or dangerous idea, I should say. And I think the quintessential disorder where this fails is in post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. What you will hear when you speak to these patients in the clinic is that they can't simply quote, quote unquote, get over the event. Right. What they're telling you in not so many words is that when they come back each night after sleep, when they're cued or triggered to recollect that memory, so the war vet hears a car backfire in the grocery car park, instantly, not only do they have the flashback of the memory right. of the trauma, 
but they also they then have, the have chemicals, that the emotion, same, the whole exactly. Thing. Yeah. And what that tells me is that the brain has not been able to strip away and divorce huh. the toxic emotion from the memory. Huh. And I don't think it's coincidental that one of the diagnostic hallmarks of PTSD can't sleep well. is repetitive nightmares and bad sleep. Yeah. And it's as though what's happening is that the brain is offering up to the PTSD sort of sleep process at night, this highly charged emotional memory and saying, please REM sleep, do your elegant trick of, you know, sort of carving off the emotion from the memory. And it fails for reasons that we're actually now starting to understand. So then the next night, what happens? The brain comes back and says, look, I've still got this highly charged emotional memory, please strip away the emotion from the memory. And it fails again, like a broken record, which is quintessential of the repetitive nightmares right. that are present in PTSD. Right, that makes a lot of sense. I, th there was something that I read uh, that deeply depressed me, however, uh, I alluded to My this research earlier. often does that. Well, but, uh, th this whole idea that my, uh, as, as a guy who is somewhat over the age of 25, my, my, <laughs> my prefrontal cortex is shrinking at some alarming rate, and, and, and therefore I'm having, uh, or at least related to that, there are issues with processing memories as I get older. I'm not sleeping as well. I think it's fairly common that people appreciate the fact that as they get older, their sleep patterns change. You don't have to be a sleep researcher to, to be aware of that. I'm more sensitive to jet lag. I'm not, I'm not nearly as good at dealing with all sorts of sleep-related issues. Uh, and this somehow is at least on a statistical level for many people my age, if not necessarily myself, uh, it inhibits me from being able to learn quite as well. It inhibits me from being able to remember. It, it, it inhibits me from being able to cleanse myself, one of the functions of uh, sleep that you had mentioned before. What's going on, first of all? Why is this happening to me as I'm getting older? And is there any way of combating this? Or are these people my age, not necessarily myself? Yeah, and, and trust me, I'm right there with you. Uh, <laughs> I may be just a few years uh, earlier on, but it's in the mail for me, at least. Um, so as I described before, what we've known is that that deep non-REM sleep, slow wave sleep, which we know helps with the saving and hence remembering of facts that you learned the day before, that type of sleep shows remarkable decreases across the lifespan and it happens, starts to happen quite early on. What we haven't really understood are two additional questions. One, why is your sleep, particularly that deep sleep, starting to degrade so rapidly as we get old? And secondly, what is the functional consequence of that degradation of that particular type of sleep? And this really brings us onto the concept of aging which you introduced there, which is that we've known that of course as we get older, our learning and memory gets worse. It's the quintessential sort of cognitive feature of getting old. But what we also know from physiological sleep studies is that this biological hallmark of aging is that our sleep gets worse. Now that we know sleep and memory are related, it begs the question, are those two things in aging, bad sleep, bad memory, simply independent? Or are they coupled, yeah. actually coupled and yeah. significantly interrelated? And so we recently published evidence last year to argue that in fact these aren't simply co-occurring events, they actually may be significantly interrelated. What we found was that there is a part of the brain that seems to correlate with your ability to generate this deep slow wave sleep, and it is the frontal lobe, just as you described and sort of inner parts of the frontal lobe. That part of the brain deteriorates with aging. So as we get old, our entire body and our brain deteriorates. In the brain, some Statist parts- Statistically speaking. Statistically speaking, <laughs> statistically speaking, yeah. Um, some wisdom comes along with it, but that's really not enough as I'm learning. 
but some parts of the brain will deteriorate more rapidly than others mm. in the aging process. And one of the parts that degrades with aging at an accelerated manner relative to other parts of the brain is the frontal lobe and these inner parts of the frontal lobe. And it's exactly that part of the brain that seems to be critical in helping us generate this deep sleep. And what we found is that as you're getting older, the degree to which this part of your brain had deteriorated, what we call atrophied, directly predicted the, the amount of reduction or the loss of that deep, slow wave sleep. Mm. And as a consequence, in turn, predicted the degree to which you would unfortunately forget rather than remember facts that you learned before on, during the day across a night of sleep. Yeah. So in some ways, it's a very depressing story that the brain as it deteriorates. Um, well, I'll try and give you a silver lining in just a second. But it, it is said that you get this sort of brain deterioration that deteriorates your sleep. And the functions that then hang on those different types of sleep also are cast off as that sleep deteriorates. One of the, now, I should back up. I'm not suggesting that aging is a sleep disorder. No, it's no, clearly not. It's a multifactorial so problem. As you said. Right. But however, that sleep is an underappreciated factor that is contributing to what we call cognitive decline as we get older, I think is now becoming fast apparent. The reason that to me is exciting is because many of the other factors that we know contribute to aging, for example, changes in blood flow, changes in the white matter tracts that connect different parts of your brain together, which do change with aging. These are all fiendishly difficult to treat. We actually don't have good treatments mm. to change blood flow or restore sort of structure within the brain. But sleep, if it's a contributing factor, is a modifiable factor. We do have ways to improve sleep. So now we have a target in aging that we can try and improve and as a consequence, restore back some degree of memory function, the degree of memory function that sleep is supporting in aging. And so we're now starting to try and move towards studies that do that, that are trying to restore. I was going to ask you, are there, are there studies or are you starting studies with older people who are embarking upon sleep therapy programs and seeing if cognition is affected in any way or, or memory is affected in any way? Is this, an, is this a next step? It is. So sort of from that work that I just described from aging, there are really two next steps. One is to go further into the aging process and dementia, particularly in terms of Alzheimer's disease where sleep disruption is just, just rife and, and remarkably So this is closing apparent. the loop, the 14-year so loop. So I'm finally coming about. back. Yeah, it only took me 14 years. Um, the other avenue is to try and then restore sleep in some way in elderly people. And we're applying for grants to do both of these streams of work. How do you restore sleep? Well, you could think about it pharmacologically. Mm. You could think about non-pharmacological ways. Another interesting way, and one that we're going to try and approach, is actually using electrical brain stimulation. Now, this is not sort of one flew over the cuckoo's nest type stuff. This is where you apply electrodes to the front of the brain and using tiny amounts of voltage. You don't even feel it when it's inputted. What you can, however, do is start to try and boost the size of those big slow brain waves on the C of the frontal lobe. Mm. And essentially you're going to be stimulating in time with the natural rhythm of the brain. And as a consequence, you're going to try and increase the size of these brain waves. You're going to try and sing in time with the brain and increase the quality of that sleep. And if you can causally increase the quality of that sleep, you could causally enhance memory. This has already been demonstrated in young healthy people. 
even oh, really? in their sleep, you can actually electrically, artificially amplify it, and you can almost double the amount of what you, benefit. What are, you, what are you wasting your time with young, healthy people for? You get, get the older guys. You would think that every night I go to sleep, I would apply these, these left and right. And I, I would argue that people should just get naturalistic, normal sleep and let evolution do its job, but it's, it's taken hundreds of thousands of years to, to, uh, to figure out. But, but certainly, I think this now becomes a therapeutic intervention possibility that this and other mechanisms that we can think of right. to try and help give back healthy sleep or as healthy as we can get it in older people we may be able to restore some of that cognitive function that is lost as a consequence of sleep. Cool. I have, I have one last question for you. You have, let's suppose that I am, because it's, it's a fun supposition, that I am uh, an, an omniscient being, and you have three questions that you have to ask me with regards to your research, with regards to sleep, questions that, are, that you're desperate to know the answer to or you're interested in, in ascertaining. Uh, what, what would those be? So I think I would probably... I would reserve one question um, for the unknown because I think there's always something that I probably haven't thought of, so I'll sort of <laughs> add that to slot number three. But I've got really two key questions. Okay. The first key question would be, why is sleep organized in the way it is? What I described to you early on was that you go into non-REM sleep first, and then after about 70 or 80 minutes, you'll start to rise up and then you'll have a, a short REM sleep period. Right. And that will complete your 90 minutes and then back down you go again, down into non-REM sleep, up into REM sleep. What's interesting, however, is that the whilst that 90 minute cycle remains stable across the night, the ratio of non-REM to REM within those 90 minute cycles changes across the night. So that in the first half of the night, the majority of those 90 minute cycles are comprised of a lot of deep non-REM sleep and very little REM sleep. As you push through to the second half of the night, that changes. The majority of those 90-minute cycles are comprised of rapid eye movement sleep. So there's a remarkably odd, non-linear, but very deliberate architecture of sleep that we can see in most species and in every individual each night. And what we've done a very good job of in the sleep field is taking apart each of those stages of sleep and understanding each of their individual functions. But not integrating them all together. Exactly. Right. We're suffering a horrible hemi-neglect in sleep. <laughs> Nobody yet really has a good idea of why sleep is structured in this way. What is the benefit of this holistic, remarkably complex structure of sleep? And I think there is a huge sort of um, answer lurking within the depths of this sleep structure complexity mm. that we right now, not only do we not have the answers, we don't even know how to ask the questions mm. about that. That, I would love to find that. The second would be to try and see if we could find a functional reason for dreaming above and beyond REM sleep. So right now, those two things are sort of fused together in a way that it's very difficult to get an experimental scalpel to separate them out. What do I mean? Um, if you're to think about a light bulb, for example, the reason that we've created a light bulb, just as if the reason that evolution has created the mechanisms within the brain um, to produce REM sleep is to produce light. Right. It turns out, however, that when you produce light in that way, you also produce something called heat. It was never the reason that you designed the light bulb. It's just what happens right. when it's you produce light. Effect, yeah. It's an epiphenomenon. Right. And so too could be the case for dreaming. Dreaming may have no function whatsoever. It may be an utter epiphenomenon. Of something which does have so an underlying... REM sleep may have functionality. It may right. help us in terms of emotion processing. Yeah. But this conscious spin-off that we call dreaming may actually just have no function whatsoever, or 
it may have remarkable functional benefits. And there's a little bit of evidence out there right now that to suggest that it's not just dreaming that's important, but perhaps what you dream, the content of your dreaming, may actually have a functional benefit. But the evidence right now is, is remarkably sparse and weak. So if I could have another question answered, it would be, is there a, an additional benefit of the process of dreaming itself above and beyond simply the physiology from which it comes from, which is REM sleep? Cool. Thank you very much, Matt. It's You're very a, welcome. It's been a delight. I've enjoyed it very much. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thanks. Sleep well. Thanks. <laughs> Um, I, I could have gone on, but I know that you have a constraint that I've already pushed over. I do. I have. I've, so the reason that this manic right now, I've got three PhD students about to graduate in the next um, uh, 17 days, and all of them are late with their PhD thesis write-ups. Right. They're all now starting to realize the time. They're all sending me drafts. Well, they so are PhD I, students after all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's only taken them five years to get here, some six. So. So I'm just in this utter madness whirlwind. So I, I'm so sorry the time is constrained. I, I don't mean to be any kind of no, no, a, no, no, idiotic were... diva about, oh, I've only got this amount of time. And I, normally, I, 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 I'm a big advocate of trying to sort of convey science to the general public. And this type of medium is, is splendid. So I'm usually very, um, I feel very fortunate to, to do well, this. But so it's just one of those No, no, no I understand. And you, you've been, uh, no, I mean, you were, you were crushed and, uh, for time. But uh, I, I, over, I overstayed my welcome a little bit. So. Uh, uh, thank you very much. It's Not a, at all. Thank a, you very much pleasure. for featuring Sleep and, and the work that the field does. That's, it's really cool. It's really, it's really, really cool. It's been one of these things that uh, I've ruminated about for a long, just at a very general level. What, what is the point of it? It doesn't seem to have any evolutionary point whatsoever. It seems like a waste. Why am I wasting a yeah. third of my life? Um, and now I'm becoming less convinced that at least Perhaps I'm wasting the waking part of my life, but it's no, it's no longer as clear to me that I'm wasting the sleeping part of my life. Not at all. I, I mean, that's the funny thing, though, with, with sleep, is that it's got this awful stigma in society, which is that nowadays people not only think that when you're getting sufficient sleep is a sort of odd thing, they almost associate sufficient sleep, and I choose that word very carefully, with laziness. Yeah. And so we as a society just have this skewed view of what sleep is. And what's odd is that we didn't always have that view. So if you think about a baby, an infant, sort of sleeping during the day, nobody looks at the infant and says, well, what a Wasting. lazy baby. <laughs> you know? No, why? Because we all realize that sleep at that moment in time is but absolutely essential. You need to sleep. Yeah. yeah. But somewhere between that early age, and it happens very quickly, into even childhood, we abandon the notion of sleep being useful, and if anything, we actually are against it. We wear our badge of, of sort of sleep deprivation, like some honor emblem, and we're proud of it. We're proud to say how little sleep we get, so where do and we're you think embarrassed. That comes from? Right. Well, I think there is this sort of stigma that when you're lying there and you're not doing anything, that it's the brain is simply dormant, the body is simply resting. So you know, I can get away with it. But there, there is a bit of laziness too, right? I mean, we've all had this. You wake up and you feel basically okay. You could get up, and then you think, ah, I'll go back to sleep for another another hour or two. Right. I'm not talking about six hours of sleep and you should have seven or seven. I'm I'm talking you, you sleep something off. You basically feel like you could get up, and then you think, nah, I'll, I'll sleep. So there. Uh, I, well, what you're describing there is what we call a sleep debt. If you could go back to sleep, it tells me that you have not been getting sufficient sleep beforehand. I can always go to sleep. Maybe I'm just abnormal. Maybe well, I shouldn't. I could, I could go to sleep, you know, 
whenever whenever you want. Uh, I mean, and I'm not narcoleptic. No, no, no. But but so people, some people will need sort of nine hours of sleep to get done what they need to get done. Others will need seven, seven and a half. But it's it, it's simply this odd misnomer that when your brain needs sleep, it's not that you're being lazy. It's a biological necessity. Human beings are one of the few species that deliberately deprives themselves of sleep. Mm. The rest of the animal kingdom doesn't do it. If they need to sleep, they sleep, and they will be better off for it. Yeah. So it's, it's a very strange situation and a stigma that's associated with sleep, and it needs to do away. Sleep is the third pillar of health. I mean, along with exercise and diet, right. sleep is that third pillar. And, and I think now, finally, we've got enough science and people are starting to convey that scientific message yeah. that habits may start to change. Well, one of the things that did actually bother me about one of your studies uh, that I read, I'm not saying this right, but, but it doesn't matter, um, is, so I, I read about the, these studies, okay, the, these people remember, they're, they're being tested for their memory. So they have these words, real words and nonsense words that are coupled together. And, uh, and they, get, they get tested with their ability to recall these things before they go to sleep, and then they get tested after they go to sleep, and so forth. And I think to myself, when I want to remember something, my success at being able to remember something is whether I want to remember something. There, there is some very significant act of volition for yep. me. To, and, and, and that seems to be left out of these kinds of stuff. Because I don't care personally about chair... But plinky, or you know, yeah, like, and, yeah. and then I have to remember a bunch. Of, I do terrible sleeping, waking on those kinds of tests. But for me, yeah. it's there's something going on in my my brain clearly when I'm focused on remembering something. Yeah. Um, and and it seems hard to model that in a lot of these studies. Maybe it's not hard, but it seems like well, a lot of these studies don't. You can don't you can sort that. of do that. So what you're describing there is a very common feature, which is that motivation normally precedes learning. Hmm that the reason that we try to sort of form new memories is often because there is motivation to do so. Right. Not always, but often. And you, there are ways that you can do that, and we have done that as well with sleep, and you seem to get an even greater benefit when you motivate them. How do you do that? What you can say is for every one of these word pairs that you're about to learn, I will give you 50 cents if you remember it. And you can modify the amount. You can give a dollar, two dollars. Right. So you basically- This is America after all. So, so right, it's classic <laughs> capitalist society. So let's incorporate it into our science. Um, so you can essentially cue each learning trial with different degrees of monetary reward. Right. And now it becomes perhaps a little bit more like what you're describing, which right. is, okay, I'm now motivated to learn. Right. Um, and so you can do studies like that too to try and make it more ecologically relevant. I guess. Um, yeah. The, 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 the serious sleep disorders, so I keep mentioning narcolepsy like I know what I'm talking about, but of course I don't. Um, what's going on with these, these people who are, who are falling asleep uh, at, at a moment's notice, or is this just some Hollywood phenomenon? Does nobody actually have these, these conditions? No, narcolepsy is, um, is a serious condition. It's um, about as common as multiple sclerosis. About 300,000 really? people wow. will suffer from narcolepsy um, right now. It is a disorder that at least at one level, is due to a lack of a specific chemical within the brain called orexin. And orexin essentially helps, if you were to think that the brain has a system where it can make you awake and then push you back into sleep, and it's sort of like this teeter-totter seesaw, one of the chemicals that helps force your brain on into wakefulness, and then when it's removed, puts you back into the default of sleep, is this chemical orexin. So think about narcolepsy, like a faulty light switch. If you speak to an engineer, a light switch, the way it should work, is that when it's on, it's fully on, and when it's off, it's all the way off. 
So it's a binary gate, much like this sort of all or nothing pendulum of, a, of the teeter-totter. Pendulum of teeter-totter, confounding my ideas. <laughs> Clearly, I slept well last night. <laughs> but so orexin, when it's in high concentrations, allows you that finger on the switch to knock it all the way on or knock it all the way off. Narcoleptic patients, however, have a biological deficiency in this chemical, orexin. And as a consequence, their sleep switch, their sleep-wake switch, hovers in that awful middle spot. Mm. And so every now and again, the light is on, it's off, it's on, it's on. So they're constantly having what we call excessive daytime sleepiness. They're awake for a little while, and then they can fall asleep very quickly, and then they're awake. And so they're in this sort of mixed no man's land between wakefulness and, and sleep. It's an awful condition. They also have other features. One of the most remarkable is something called cataplexy. Now, remember I described the paralysis that happens during REM sleep. Unfortunately, that same mechanism of paralysis will kick in when narcoleptic patients are awake oh, and they will just collapse down. Really? Jeez. And now, when you see this, it looks like they've had a sleep attack, but it's not a sleep. They do have sleep attacks and where they'll fall asleep. But they're, they're actually awake. It's just they're, they're awake, paralyzed. But they're paralyzed. Huh. And the trigger is strong emotion. So if you were to, you know, if you're a narcoleptic, or if I'm a narcoleptic patient and I walk into the room and you're behind the door and then you jump out, hi, that startle, bang, I'm on the floor. The paralysis kicks in. The emotion was too strong for me so and I'm wrapped in emotion. So there's something, something with this whole amygdala exactly. thing again? That's... So this same mechanism we believe, this REM sleep mechanism of paralysis is dysfunctional. And we're still starting to unpack the neural circuitry underlying this. Mm. Um, so, but imagine that, I mean, it, it's one of the, the most sick disorders of the brain. If, imagine any moment in your life, any, any action, any decision that you had that wasn't motivated by one of two simple emotions, the need to stay away from something that was bad or the need to achieve something that was going to be good. That is the, those two principles guide almost every single decision and action that you make across your entire life. Right. Emotions are good. We it, like to engage in emotions. We like to try and stay away from the bad stuff and go after the good stuff. We're always self-medicating our emotions. Imagine a life and a condition where you are reinforced not to experience emotion. You can't go to your, you know, your daughter's party necessarily where there's going to be a clown and everyone's getting excited because you start to get happy and then you just go into this paralysis attack. Oh. So you can't have a life with yeah. strong emotion. You have to stay away from it. You stay away from all the good stuff, all the fuzzy stuff, the warm stuff. That's the sick aspect of narcolepsy. Yeah. So sad. Is it also because they can't, because they're always in this mid-range level as well that you were saying, like the light switch being half on and half off, does it, presumably this also means they can't cleanse themselves, they can't, re, can't refresh. So we're only now starting to do those, to, to ask those questions as a field which is now we're starting to understand the, the functions of sleep. We can go into disorders like narcolepsy, right. like insomnia, like depression, like PTSD, and start to ask, okay, what is it about their sleep that is disrupted? Let's measure that. And we, for the most part, we know that about these different disorders. Now we can say, okay, if we go into our Rolodex of functions that seem to be associated with those different stages of sleep, what would we predict? And then let's test it. Let's see if it, it's actually present. So you could imagine that one of the reasons that narcoleptic patients can suffer from cognitive impairments or emotional impairments is because they're not getting the amount of sleep or sure. the sleep at the right time to gain these benefits. And then they're in a vicious circle, presumably. Exactly. They, they, exactly. They, they, they yeah. It's a spiral. 
Do you have any sleep? Do you have these meta sleep issues yourself because you know so much about sleep? Do you, do you lie awake at night thinking, uh, I should go, it's really important for me to go to sleep? It's funny. <laughs> at least if you're like me, sort of, you know, British, slightly odd, um, you do become, I mean, I've become essentially the, the Woody Allen neurotic of the sleep world. <laughs> so, you know, if I'm lying there, I mean, normally I'm asleep pretty good and I'll, I do practice what I preach, it's hokey. But, you know, let's say I've sort of flown back home to England, I'm suffering from jet lag, I'm lying there in bed at night. Gets worse, by the way. And uh, thanks very much. Yeah, yeah, you're all hot. Um, and um, I'm lying there and I'm not falling asleep and I know exactly what, you, so now I'm thinking, okay, so my dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is not shutting down. My noradrenaline serotonin are not starting to damp down, nor is my acetylcholine. At that point of analysis, you're dead in the water for the next two hours. So it, it's, it's ironic uh, uh, in so many levels. The other irony of sleep research is to understand the function of what you're studying, you often have to deprive yourself of the very thing. Right. You have to stay awake at night. And you know, Now, luckily, I have wonderful students who work with me, and they do all of that stuff. Um, and I get to now have good nights of sleep. But there was a time when I was, I was taking away the very thing that I was trying to understand the benefit of. And how, do, how are you looked at by your colleagues? Are you an outlier, the sleep guy, uh, or, or is everybody in a little box? I mean, uh, it, it, I would certainly say that sleep science is on the, you know, you're, you're a novelty. I was going to say oddity, but that implies <laughs> negativity. I would say uh, I'm a novelty. Um, and sleep science, you know, has often been almost a charlatan science. It's only really been in the past sort of 30 or 40 years that it's become, you know, a valid scientific field of study. Now with dreams, that's, they're still in the doldrum. You know, to say that you're going to study dreams, it's academic suicide. You, very, right. you best have tenure before you start to go out and oh, start really? studying It's like foundation dreams. of quantum theory, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's in that realm, you know, because they just feel like they're so sort of ephemeral, they're so right. difficult to quantify. And um, there is good science now being done, good hard empirical science on dreaming, but it's taken a while because of the terrible um, shadow of Freud. Right. Um, you know, the guy was was very smart. He created a theory, but the problem with the theory was that it was non-scientific. You couldn't falsify it, or you couldn't prove it correct. And it was both its genius and simultaneous downfall. It's genius because you could never prove it wrong, and that's the reason that 100 years plus, it's still with us. Right. But it's downfall because it was never embraced scientifically, because it's not an empirically testable hypothesis. We're, we're doing a whole series on cognitive science and psychology, and, and it seems to me, as uh, clearly an outsider, but objective, therefore, in my ignorance, it seems to me that the field has changed remarkably in the past 20, 25 years since fMRI came into play, and since a lot of these scientific uh, practices were, were embraced. and and my sense is there, there's a bit of a cultural gap. Sometimes you see the people who are outside of all of that, and then you see the younger generation of people, and to some extent maybe the older generation, who have embraced all these modern technologies and, and more scientific um, aspects uh, very, very rigorously. Is, is there a sense of that? And I don't want to talk about Berkeley in general, but let's just say the field. Is, do you get a sense of some schisms that are happening within the field that you have the old style psychologists who say things like, you know, stay away from my Freud. Who the heck are you to be talking about dreams? You know, you don't right. understand anything. You, we understand the human condition and you're just measuring things with a bunch of knobs and dials and so forth. And, and then people who say, you know, enough of you guys, you haven't gotten us anywhere. You're just talking. Let's do some real science and push the boundaries of knowledge. Yeah. Is, 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 it's very, very rough caricatures, but do you have that sort of distinction within the field of psychology? Is that, is that a fair way of looking at things or not? I think within the field of sleep science, I think senior or junior, young versus old, 
I think people are very much embracing sort of, you know, modern technologies and understanding that that's going to lead and pave the way to the future discoveries. I think when you stack up sort of sleep science together with perhaps the world of psychoanalysis, there I think there may be a, a, a gap between those two that may not necessarily allow those two worlds to sit happily together. Right. Um, you know, psychoanalysis, there are aspects of it which are non-empirical, which are non-scientific. Um, it's not to say that it may not have a benefit, but it's simply that it doesn't seem to be grounded in the empirical validity and replicable, replicability of science. Um, so I think, I, I think if, there are, if there is a division, it's between the, the world of the, the sleep scientist versus the world of the psychoanalyst. Right. Um, and I think those two things have stayed apart, and I think they probably will remain apart um, uh, until e either one of them okay. dies away. But, but at some level, I used to be an ac academic administrator uh, for my sins in a previous life. Uh, and, and so I, I can imagine that you have uh, a department, uh, again, in general, I'm not talking necessarily here, but you have a, a faculty hire and you have all these different groups in your department, and people say, you know, we've had we've had a bunch of these guys for a while, we need to have, we're underrepresented, especially when the old guard retires, you know, it's a standard sort of thing, right? So, well, we, uh, we've never been, all of our posts that have been retired, all of our retirees are being replaced by all these young guys who are doing all this other stuff. And enough of that, we have to have balance in the department. And, and right. this sort of thing can be iterated across the board, across yep. the, the entire field. So I'm guessing because t when I was an undergraduate, it seems that psychology is radically different from the way it is uh, the way it is today, I'm guessing that you would feel these sociological tugs on any particular department that you would go to. But I don't know if that's actually true. That's just pure speculation on my part. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always when sort of new technologies or new theories or new ways of measuring, you know, a specific process come in, there's always speculation. There's some resistance to those who won't adopt it. Um, and there's claims from those who've rapidly adopted it. So is that playing out in the world of my own sort of field of sleep research? Um, to a degree, but I think it's surprising. I think we're, we are such an odd little faction sure. of the world of, of science that I think we're, we're much more sort of harmonious in, in our sort of aggregation. Now, it's not to say that, you know, at the end of a conference, we all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. You know, it's not, you know, there are divisions and there are sort of debates, but... Um, in terms of that aspect of it, I think, um, I think there's a remarkable degree of um, sort of unification over right. the new and, and where it will take us, and many of the old are adopting the, the, the modern of the new. Is the technology getting a lot better? Are there new things coming online? You do a lot of fMRI, but you also do these EEG things as well. We do. Right? And, and yeah, so. so we try not to be limited by the questions that we can answer in terms of the technologies that are available, and so we will rapidly develop technologies or learn how to use technologies if they're going to answer the question. Um, I'm not necessarily just interested in technologies for the sake of the technologies. Sure. I'm always interested in questions, even much more so than I am answers. I think that's why people become scientists. But uh, so I think there are certainly new technologies that are starting to emerge within the animal research field. Um, optogenetics is a, a huge area where you can actually genetically engineer cells to be light sensitive and you can switch on some circuits within the brain or switch them off no. in very remarkably selective ways. I think that's now starting to come into the sleep world and we're starting to be able to control on and off different sleep circuits. 
um, and as a consequence, amplify or impair the benefits that sleep gives. Um, and I also just think that our understanding of the brain mechanisms regarding sleep and emotional regulation is within the next 10 years going to offer, I think, or it will provide some significant insights into modern day psychiatry. I think one of the greatest areas of failing of modern medicine is the domain of psychiatry. I mean, in some ways we're still where we were, you know, 20 or 30, 40 years ago. We don't have good, you know, drug treatments for depression, for schizophrenia. NIMH, the National Institutes of Mental Health, you know, have really made a strong push over the last five to 10 years to change what they're funding, to see real differences because the field has, they believe, stagnated and, and, and I support that. Um, and I think sleep has a remarkably loud and potent and causal story to tell the field of psychiatry. And I think when in the next five to 10 years, we'll have the evidence that really allows us to, to make those claims. Are you guys making headway in terms of the, the way you described it at the very beginning? You know, there's food and there's sex and there's sleep. Uh, I think there was another, but anyway, that's enough for now. Yeah. Um, and, and, and putting the, the, looking at the very essential biological functions and recognizing that a lot of research has been done here over years, centuries, and, that, and then this whole area, which is so fundamental, has been ignored. Are more and more people in appreciable numbers starting to recognize this and, and, and pay attention to your research? Um, I think within the field of science and medicine more generally, the recognition that sleep is an essential biological function has, has been embraced. Uh, and as I said, I think the field has switched now to trying to say, is there any tissue within the body? Is there any mechanism within the brain that isn't beneficially? But that's from your sleep? perspective as a sleep scientist. I Absolutely. Mean, so, but I think in the general field of, of science per se, and also within medicine, I think that recognition is happening. Okay. I think what's still missing is the translation of that science to the general public. So I would argue that we are with sleep where we were with smoking 50 years ago. And a lack of sleep will kill you quicker than smoking. And we know that from two lines of evidence. Firstly, rats will die as quickly from sleep deprivation as they will from food deprivation. It's that essential. Wow. And we also know that there's a condition called fatal familial insomnia. It's a very rare genetically inherited disorder in humans that after six months to 18 months, because of a lack of sleep due to this genetic abnormality, you will also die. So, you know, it's just like smoking, it, sleep, a lack of sleep will kill you. But you know, I think you know, if roll the clock back 50 years or you know, watch an episode of Mad Men, you know, and firstly, not only is smoking sort of deemed appropriate and people don't really understand that it's biologically or health-wise bad for you, but if anything, society is promoting it. Right. Nowadays, you, know, you can't get commercials on television for smoking. We realized very quickly from a public health standpoint, it's so bad that we should take those away. But yet you can, you know, I can cycle down um, here and I can be behind a bus and it will say, you know, on some advertisement for Red Bull or some kind of energy drink that's, you know, laced with alerting chemicals, you know, sleep when you're dead or, you know, this, this idea of this odd, odd notion. So I think from a public health standpoint, the message still hasn't sort of pervaded the public consciousness. It's slowly getting there. And that's why I think the responsibility lies with people like me to come onto situations like this in front of a camera trying to inform yeah. people. We have a real responsibility because it's the general public who is funding my work. You know, it's the taxpayer's dollar 
that, that funds it. So you, you have a responsibility. You have a moral and ethical responsibility. Enough of this whole American funding my work. Well, well but I, I, I absolutely think I have you know an ethical and moral. But I also think you know people deserve something for their money too. And tax, you know. Uh, so I think at all of those levels, um, we need to get the message out there and slowly, hopefully, um, by the grace of folks like you coming to speak to people like me. That will change. Okay. Well, we hope so. Um, I just, should probably. Yeah, I, I, I know. should probably. Can I, can head I just away. ask you one, yeah. one more that's come to my mind? The slow. This is just for me, right? Obviously, the the slow rhythm that you talk about. This uh, the slow undulating, deep non-REM sleep rhythm that that is that is so essential to us. Is does that stay the same in terms of its frequency as we get older? And is that the same? Is it roughly the same characteristic in terms of uh, uh, the, the frequency of this particular wave? Yeah, and how, and, and does question. it stay the same throughout uh, other mammals as well? And I mean, is it basically you and I and Taylor and everybody has roughly the same frequency of this? Or does that depend on, uh, on us and does that change as we so get it does. We're starting to now dig into this and what we're finding is that it does change with, across the lifespan. It, it doesn't go as slow as it did when you were young compared to when you're old. Okay. As you're getting old, that slowness. It slows down. No, it gets actually fast. It goes oh, away okay. from being nice and slow and deep, and it starts to become a little more erratic, and it okay. also becomes a little faster, which may not give the benefits of a nice, synchronized, slow pattern. Right. Even across any one night, it starts off very slow and very big in terms of the size of those waves, the height of those waves, what we call the amplitude. And as you're moving across the night, they start to get a little bit faster and a little sort of more shallow sure. in terms of, of their height. Um, so they're damped. So. so that, exactly. So, so there are changes within a night, there are changes across the lifespan, there are changes from one individual to the next. Okay. Um, but, and again, these are all, you know, these are things that we've, we can measure and we've known about for some time. The critical questions now are, what's the consequence right. of those changes? And that's where really the interesting stuff starts right. to happen. Okay, I'll, I'll let you go. Thank okay, you. Thank you no problem so at all, I should head away. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Biology, along with separate discussions with Jay Gargas, Nick Lane, Asino Silva, and Stephen Shearer. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.